Welcome, friends. I'm Sarah Ann Stewart, and this is the Awesome Inside Out Podcast. Now, I'm not sure how you ended up here today, but I want to welcome you with open arms. Because while our past may be different, I'm going to take a wild guess that we share one common desire to have a deeply fulfilling, extraordinary life in a body that we love. A life free of diets, free from guilt, and free from shame. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into mindset shifts that give you the power to decide how you feel, not the media, not your past, and not social conditioning. Then you'll discover how to use this inspiration and this new sense of confidence to be the best you, the you that you are meant to be. So get ready, my friend. It is time to get awesome inside out. Hey there, thanks so much for tuning in to another interview episode on the Awesome Inside Out podcast. If you enjoy this conversation, the absolute best way that you can always support is by leaving a five-star review, subscribing, sharing on social media, or with the people that you love. It would mean the world to me for others to have access to this powerful content, so thank you so much in advance. Also, make sure to stay till the end as I'm going to offer you some applicable takeaways from the conversation shared. I want to start this podcast by taking a moment to reflect on what this year has been for each of us. I know for me personally, it has been intense, thought-provoking, and an incredible opportunity for growth. And I have a good feeling that you too have experienced personal shifts. For many, it has reminded us that we still have a lot of work to do in recognizing and confronting our own internal biases all while also recognizing that there is a massive need for us to speak up about anti-racism initiatives and promote diversity and inclusion in our country. There is simply no one better to discuss how we can embody inclusivity, both in our personal and our professional lives, than Pamela Fuller, an incredible leader working at the forefront of these challenges. Pamela's work has always been tied to issues of inclusion with an emphasis on exploring the impacts of bias and pushing just a bit to make progress. For over 15 years, Pamela has worked in both the public and private sector, supporting clients and solving complex problems. She currently serves as Franklin Covey's thought leader on inclusion and bias, as well as a global client partner responsible for supporting some of the organization's most strategic accounts. Further, Pamela is the author of a new book, A Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. Today, I'm sitting down with Pamela to dive deep into the impact of our biases and how we, as individuals, can push up against our own beliefs and take actionable steps to make progress towards an anti-racist future. I'm excited to share this undeniably important conversation with you today. And I trust that you will find this conversation as important and necessary as I do. Hi, Pamela. Welcome to the Awesome Inside Out podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I am too. I remember we connected a few months ago. My husband had you speak at his company, Golden Hippo. And I remember him coming home and and just saying, oh my gosh, I had this amazing woman speak at our company who has dedicated her life to working on issues of inclusion um, with an emphasis of exploring impacts of bias. And you have to have her on your podcast and you're going to love her and she's amazing. And so I was so excited to connect with you a couple months ago and hear about your book coming out, 
which is, I, I think, so important for the times that we're in and, and just hear about the work that you're doing. Um, and so I wanted to start there. I just wanted to really get a sense and, and have listeners get a sense of how you got into this work, what you're currently doing, how you're supporting you know, so many people uh, with this specific topic. Yeah, thank you. So I, my career has always been tied to issues of sort of marginalized groups and trying to uplift marginalized voices. And when I think about bias, I think I've always been pushing just a little bit to try to make progress, right? Try, I think really central to my approach is meeting people where they are, right? The goal is progress. <laughs> How can we move forward as we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And building a diverse, equitable, and inclusive world. Um, so I started my career in nonprofit. I did fundraising and advocacy. I transitioned to public sector. I worked for a little bit at the U.S. Department of Defense in an office of diversity and inclusion, and then transitioned to my role at Franklin Covey. We're a global company focused on performance improvement. And if you think about leadership development and learning and development, inclusion is such an important lens to that work right? Like lots of leaders fancy themselves great leaders. They think very critically about the impact of their decisions on their people, on business results, on strategy, on their customers, on their stakeholders. And I think fewer leaders think about what it means to be an equitable and inclusive leader and what it means to proactively build a diverse workforce. And the reality is that if you don't have that lens on your leadership, it's not great because somebody is being unintentionally left behind. So I feel like it's such a critical leadership competency to have not just awareness of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but really thinking about proactively the things that you're doing to build an equitable and inclusive workforce, a diverse workforce and work environment. Um, and so that's what I spend most of my time doing now on behalf of Franklin Covey with global clients, local clients across the public and private sector. And the result of that work is a forthcoming book. It's coming out on November 10th called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Build High-Performing Teams. So I'm the co-author with two other people, Mark Murphy and Ann Chow, on that book. And we're just so excited about it. I'm so excited about it. I'm excited to get it. I'm excited to read it. <laughs> I'm excited to dive into it. Um, I know my husband and I are both planning on going through it together. So... I'm, I'm super excited about that. When we talked about before, um, you have this three-part model, which I kind of want to dive into and talk about because I think whether you're leading a company or not, I think it's really important right now to be having this conversation. And I think it's more important to be having it um, even in our homes, right? With our family members. And it's been a big discussion with our parents lately. And so can you walk us through the three-part model um, that you talk about and, and how that can be applied to anyone listening and, and really be, being able to really start to break down some of these, these belief systems and these stories that we've, you know, we've taken on for many, many years that definitely it's time. <laughs> it's time to break them down and, and really make these shifts. Yeah, definitely. So we have a, you know, at Franklin Covey, we have a content piece around this and the content is really built mm -hmm. around this three part model. So the first part is focused on the individual work of introspection, right? How do we identify the biases that we have, right? And it's not a thing where you can just think really hard and come up with a list. We have to do some real work to understand the connection between our own identities and the biases we hold. Um, and what's happening in the brain that makes us more susceptible to biased thinking. The second part of the model is really about interpersonal connection, right? How do we cultivate meaningful connection using these dual skills of empathy and curiosity? 
In the absence of information, our brain creates a story. And so, and because we're all under duress, we have to, we're responsible for more than we can bear, right? In the times of COVID, our personal and professional lives have been smashed together. We don't often sort of slow down and build these meaningful connections with people, particularly across difference, right? And the more that we can do that, the more we can hijack some of our natural affinity and in-group biases. And then the third part of the model is choose courage. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And if we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, this work has been happening for three decades and we have not seen the progress that we'd like to see. And so how can we be courageous and make commitments to do things differently in the face of bias that can be inhibiting our organizations. And in the book, we actually added a fourth part to this model, really focused on what we call the talent life cycle. Just all the decisions that go into a person's career, um, how they get into an organization, what we do with them once they're in the organization, how do they engage, what kind of work do they do, what is their team like, and then how do they move up in the organization, right? Succession planning and development. And I think as an individual, to look at that talent life cycle as your own career, and think about where you might have self-limiting beliefs or where you might not go for opportunities or might not engage in the same way because you feel that your possibilities are inhibited or you feel diminished or marginalized in some way, right? Being able to recognize that and take action in the face of that, I think is really profound. And as leaders, recognizing that our decisions impact people very significantly, what their careers look like and how they define their own possibilities. Yeah, it's so important. And thank you for sharing. I would love to dive deeper on the empathy piece and this ability to really understand and share the feelings of another. I know that there's part of your book where you emphasize this importance of mindfulness and going within and looking within to confront our own implicit biases and really consider where um, we personally have fallen short. And so as I've seen in my own work, mindfulness is this key tool in cultivating self-awareness. And as you share, introspection is, um, is absolutely necessary. And so I would love to dive deeper on how, how mindfulness helps us cultivate empathy and how mindfulness can be this powerful tool to incorporate into your work as well. Um, most specifically to witness and recognize the parts of ourselves that, that deeply need to shift. I um, personally often find that people find it challenging to understand at first on a personal level how uh, meditation and mindfulness practices actually can bring humanity closer together. And so I would love for you to help make that connection as um, so many people going through through my programs and also listening are integrating mindfulness practices and meditation in in their daily lives. And um, and that's really the goal of this podcast, I think. The goal has always been to encourage individuals to go within and, and reconsider how they're currently living, how they're currently operating, um, and how they're showing up every day, specifically in relation to their health, um, how they're showing up in the world, how they're showing up in leadership, how they're showing up in their careers, their relationships, um, and in their communities. Yeah, I think you know we think about mindfulness as something soft, as like a nice to have or something optional. But there's a lot of research that points to how important mindfulness is in our decision-making and how we engage with other people that we are often, I mean, our brain is really designed to be on autopilot, 
right? We take in 11 million bits of information in every given moment, and we can only actively process 40 bits of information. And that delta, that gap, the way that our brain handles that is autopilot, right? It's all these cognitive shortcuts and automatic systems and sort of binary categories, yes, no, good, bad. Um, and that's how we navigate the world, unless we do something about it, right? And mindfulness is the answer in terms of how we build awareness and can really connect with what it is we're feeling in a given circumstance or situation. So we walk into a meeting and we feel panic. And having a mindfulness practice means that before we walk into that meeting, we can anticipate that we're going to feel this panic and we can think critically about why we feel the panic. Is this about the subject of the meeting? Is this about the people in the meeting? Is this about my sense of whether I belong in the meeting or whether I will be heard in the meeting or um, you know, whether I can even be my whole self in this meeting, right? Asking ourselves those questions. I think a, a meaningful mindfulness practice and really literally building into your day the space between stimulus and response can uncover so much about our biases, both the biases we hold about ourselves and also other people. Yes. And then there's this courage piece, I think, which is so important right now. And I would love to dive deeper um, into this topic because of cancel culture, because of what we're seeing online with so much negativity. Um, and what I'm hearing a lot of is people are terrified to be online anymore. They're terrified to show up. They're even terrified to show up in a powerful way that relates to their business and their impact. And so I would love to offer some courageous steps that that maybe individuals can take to become an ally and how they can step into a role where they can truly be supportive. And so do you have any actionable steps or mindset shifts around this that can help encourage individuals to show up differently um, and move through this fear? Because I think we as humans, when we go into fear and we go into that fear mindset, we, we often sometimes get stuck and then sadly we don't move through the fear into action. Yeah. So I certainly think cancel culture has its place, right? And I think what becomes challenging is how we decide who gets canceled, right? And then sort of what the line is. And I don't uh, purport to be the arbiter of such things. But I think that generally, the way that you get good at something is by doing it badly first, right? So if we think about building a skill, right? Or we think about, I am a, I describe myself as an aspiring runner because I run quite often, but not very fast. And I'm trying to get better at it. And it's something that I have found is really helpful, particularly in COVID for me to clear my head, right? Like everyone is home all the time. I have two children and a husband who I love dearly, but it means in the moment I don't get very much time to myself. And so I've sort of built this running practice, which is a form of mindfulness, I think. Um, and the first time you go out to run after a long time, it's very hard to run. I mean, you really, you call it a run and you're doing more walking, right? And if I let that experience color my whole experience with running, I never actually get better at running. Um, or another sort of metaphor I've used to think about it is learning a language that you first learn a vocabulary and then, and you mispronounce the words and you sort of fumble over them. You can't remember the word. You need to look it up. And then you learn how to put sentences together. And it starts with sort of simple sentences and moves into more complex sentences. But the way that you actually learn a language is by having conversation, right? In Spanish, the word for pregnant is embarazada. 
And so it sounds like you're saying embarrassed if you were, um, if English was your first language. And the way that you learn Spanish is you tell six people that you're pregnant when what you meant to say was that you're embarrassed <laughs> and you get corrected, right? And, and I think, so I think we need to take cancel culture for, for that, like for that intent, that it is a way for us to get better and not take it as this, you know, not operate under the assumption that we're infallible. I mean, we are not infallible. We are going to have all the good intent and we're going to sometimes get it wrong. And we have to be open to that feedback or we will never get better. So I think that tangible things people can do. The first is to really think about what kind of stories they're consuming, right? So we are each, I mean, Pew, the Pew Research Center released some data that said basically we are more likely to be surrounded by people like us in identity, in race, and socioeconomics, and education. And so we often have circles that are reflective of us in our experience, which means we have to work really hard to get additional perspectives. And you can do that through things like Humans of New York or for the kinds of shows you watch or the media you consume. You can do it in the kind of professional networks that you join or the sort of nonprofit or service work that you do. Um, you can do that in where you choose to travel, right? When, <laughs> when traveling is safe again um, and where you choose to spend your time and what authors you choose to read, right? But there is this intentional effort to expand your lens through how you learn and what you consume that I think is courageous, right? Because you're picking the unexpected book. You're picking the podcast that might not be marketed to you, right? You're picking something where you're going to hear the stories and your first instinct might be, I don't relate to this, but you're triggering those skills of empathy and curiosity to, to figure out how you can relate to it. I think the second thing is really thinking about the ways in which you have formal and informal power and authority. And how are you lending that power and authority to other people? I mean, most of us, for those, for those that are working, right, at work, there are uh, various tables at which decisions are being made. And there are people who have a formal seat at those tables. And if you have a formal seat at that table, how can you sort of open the, the proverbial tent, right? Like how can you invite someone who might not have a formal seat at the table, but can contribute to the decision that's being made? Or how can you bring people in to the discussions around decisions and give them access to opportunity? When you select somebody as a protege or as someone you're gonna mentor, over the course of their career, they have exponentially more access to your time, to your insight, to your experience, and by association, they get to be at tables that they might not otherwise be at. And so I think we have to think about our own networks and where there's opportunity to connect meaningfully and ask ourselves some tough questions, right? When we're sponsoring someone, are we only willing to sponsor them up to where we are? Or are we really willing to sponsor them even ahead of where we are, right? Are we willing to push on that a little bit? Um, so it doesn't feel like it's only, you only have possibilities until I say, right? It's that you have limitless possibilities and I want to help you achieve them. Um, and I think the third thing is really about intense curiosity. Like as you think about the talent life cycle, who gets power, right? Who gets to make decisions? Who gets, whose project gets supported? Um, you know, whose suggestions get implemented? Um, I think those critical questions, or, or what do people mean by different things? When someone says, I don't think that he'd be a good fit here, 
what do you mean by fit? Right? Can you tell me more about that? Well, he just doesn't seem professional. Well, what do you mean by professional? Did something specific happen that showed he was unprofessional, right? So I think when we talk in these sort of, we broadly dismiss people and we have to ask some questions about why that happened and ensure that they were dismissed appropriately or if they weren't, how do we sort of bring them back in? Yes, this is such an interesting perspective and I really appreciate you sharing that. Thank you so much. I'm curious about your thoughts on becoming more aware of how our use of social media um, and algorithms are really curating our experiences and influencing more of a divide. I, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but specifically around if it's curating our results based on what we're searching, what we're looking at, what we're engaging with. I recently watched The Social Dilemma and I realized how problematic it's become, especially when it comes to allowing us to witness others' experiences or even curating our feed to look a specific way where we don't engage in in other cultures or diverse experiences. So um, as our world and specifically our online world becomes carefully curated, which is a reflection of what so many of us are seeing and searching all day long, do you have any thoughts on this topic specifically? Yeah. So I think we, I, I know that social media is a double-edged sword, right? And I certainly work with people who think, who sort of dismiss social media as lacking substance. And I just disagree so profoundly. I think that social media is such, has the ability to be such a connector if we're intentional about the network that we're building, right? So if you only see what the algorithm puts in front of you, then, then you're missing out on a lot of good stuff. But you think about, you know, in our, in our book, we quote um, the lead singer of Arcade Fire does a lot of activism work. And he said that the value of some of these social media networks is that conversations that used to happen in private are now in public display and you can just listen, right? So when you think about like Black Twitter, right, it is a, it is a presence, it is a force, <laughs> right? Um, Black Twitter and all those conversations, those are conversations that Black people have and have been having for years. Commentary on culture, commentary on workplace inclusion, right? Commentary or exposure to what it's like to be a Black or Brown person in the world in lots of different contexts. And now you could just follow some influencers and actually listen to those conversations that you wouldn't have been privy to otherwise. So it is incumbent on us to hijack the algorithm, right? And to really think about, you know, do that sort of audit of even our social media. I mean, is everyone who I follow, is every page that I'm in support of reflective of me? And do I follow anyone who's doing something different? I mean, even as you think about wellness, so much of wellness, social media and influencers um, are white. And then if you actively try to seek out black meditation gurus, right? Or Latinx meditation gurus or yogis or um, people who have wellness platforms, then you find that, oh, the community is actually bigger than I would have originally thought, but you have to search for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I even noticed that when I was searching for images for my courses. So thank you for sharing it. It really became very frustrating for me um, that most photo websites where you download photos for, um, for your courses and for your website, um, they don't have a diverse range of images that represent 
um, individuals of all ages or individuals of all races. And, and then I started searching and I was able to, um, to find that the Dove Project had a partnership with Getty, but it took some time. And it really does, I think, it takes that extra step and that extra effort to say, okay, well, if I can't find it here, what's the next step? Where do I look next? Who do I ask? Um, what are some other resources that I can look into? And that's been a big learning process for me as well. It requires us all being a stance and making that that extra effort, which often requires more time and energy. Yeah, just asking the additional question. I mean, that's a. I think it's a good question in this space is what will I accept? And so like, will I accept that different images of bodies don't exist? And in this case, you did not, right? So you found that actually the so the images of different bodies and skin tones and shapes and um, abilities, right, and and, um, and genders and, and gender fluidity, like all of that is available and it is growing profoundly if you look for it. It's still not like the first thing that comes up, <laughs> right, when you're searching. No, it's definitely not. And I think that after our conversation and um, diving into this educational process and reading books and taking trainings, I'm much more conscious than I was even just a few months ago. And that's the empowering part for me is that we can always, every moment, every hour, every day, we can, we can become more aware. And really, it's about becoming aware. And then, as you said, taking that extra day, week, month to make sure that we're taking the necessary steps to really create more diversity and inclusion within our company, community, life. Um, I think it's something that I'm definitely learning. I know I have a long way to go, but I feel supported by you and so many other individuals that have taken the time to talk and share and educate me and really provide resources um, of the next steps to take, which I'm so grateful. And so I'm really excited for your book to come out. I'm excited to dive into it and learn more. Um, I'm curious if you had one goal of the book and what what would that be? What would you want people to take away from reading it? What would be that one thing? I think that it goes to something I said in, in the first part of our conversation. Um, I think that many people would say, I think diversity, equity, and inclusion are important. And I don't think people should be on the receiving end of negative bias. But then if you ask them, okay, so, and what have you done about that? I think then people sort of flounder. They're like, well, no, I mean, I think it's important, right? <laughs> and the reality is that our good intentions don't make change, right? The thing that makes change is our action. And so the book will have been successful if everyone who picks it up takes action, right? If they see that building a diverse, equitable, and inclusive society and world and workplace is not just the responsibility of the activists, <laughs> right? Um, and the facilitators and the consultants, that it is the responsibility of each of us, right? Because, I mean, I work with organizations every day and I come in and I share my research and my knowledge and I work hard to push on people and give them the skills and tools necessary to make progress around bias, right? But then I leave. And they have to do the thing. They have to have the uncomfortable and courageous conversation. They have to ask the critical question. They have to challenge the status quo. And so the book will have been successful if people feel empowered to do that. Um, and it's really designed to be sort of workshopped and applied as you read it. So at the end of every chapter, there's a reflection for individuals and then an application for leaders. 
that really asks you to pull this into your daily life, whether at work or personally. And if people can really do that, spend that bit of mental energy and time um, pulling this into their lives, then I know we'll have been successful. Oh yeah. I love that. And I'm excited to take those steps and start implementing those things into my life more. So thank you. Um, because of your work and your work is so deeply rooted in science and research, I'm curious if there's anything recent that you feel compelled to share right now um, that maybe you recently have come across. I think especially with the election coming up, um, now more than ever, we need to be taking the necessary steps and really be open to exploring and diving deeper into research that may be outside of our community or even the typical outlets that we usually engage with. Um, and so is, is there any research that's top of mind that you feel is applicable for the times that we're currently in, um, the times we're currently living in, and why we need um, drastic, drastic change? I don't know that I'll, I mean, I agree everyone should vote, um, <laughs> but I think that there's so much data that ties parts of people's identity that has nothing to do with their capability to their results, right? So people who have non-Western names um, have to submit 30% more resumes to get a response. And so is there correlation between your name and your capability to do a job? Or if you look at, you know, you're Malcolm Gladwell. If you look at CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, 58% of them are over six feet tall and only 10% of the global population is over six feet tall. And what does that say about how we decide who gets to run things and who gets to have authority? Or if you look at women, for every 1% increase in a woman's body mass, there's a 0.5% decrease in pay. And is there a correlation between a woman's size and her ability to do a job? And for men, because of that height statistic, it's the opposite. So as their weight goes up, their pay increases. Um, and so there's all these things about your identity that form, that define your possibilities. And not to say that any of us can't, overcome that. But it's like, why does it have to be harder? Right? <laughs> why, why does this additional barrier exist? And I think about, when I think about what motivates me, I have two boys. They're four and 11. They're gorgeous. They're huge. Right? My husband is six, four. And there's just this reality that they're going to be these grown black men in the world, in America, right? Trying to achieve possibilities and be happy and be loved. Right. And I think that drives my work. How do I create a better world for them? How do I enhance their possibilities? And I just really believe strongly that nothing about someone's identity should inhibit them. And the data says all kinds of things about people's identity inhibits them. Um, and, and I think that is compelling, right? That should not be the case. We should do something to change that. So that's what I try to do. And that's what I hope everyone who engages with my work will try to do. Thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate you sharing those statistics. I think um, they were really powerful for me and, and hopefully for everyone listening as well. I think it's so important that we have these conversations and continue to have them. And hearing accurate statistics is always really helpful to become aware of what's actually happening, not what is just happening in our world or what we see in our closed bubble online that is carefully curated. Um, I think the other pieces is not going into denial or avoidance because we can curate our 
our world based on social media. And so often um, the truth becomes a bit of a shock to our system. And um, and there has to be this integration of really learning and, and recognizing the statistics that are true and then um, and then recognizing that even if they're not true for us, they're true for someone else and they need to be addressed. And um, again, going back to the willingness to open our eyes um, and place ourselves in often uncomfortable situations to witness the truth and um, and make a stance for for it as well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was working with a client who said something that I thought was really interesting. She was like, I realized through this work that we had done together that my experience is actually very different from other people's experience. Like, I think it is part of our natural affinity bias and in-group bias to make assumptions that our own experience is the typical experience, right? All of us, there's this other interesting data point that when women are um, 17% of the room, men will say that they're half. And when women are 33% of the room, men will say that women are the overwhelming majority. And it is this, like, which I bet you could extrapolate to other things, right? Like if you, if you said disability or if you said the queer community or if you said black or brown people, right? That like whatever, when you're in the majority, your assumption is that everyone's experience is very similar. And when you're sort of confronted with difference, you're, you give it outsized weight. Right. And so I think that that speaks to what you're saying that like we just all assume that our experience is the experience and it's not. I mean, we, we, Stephen R. Covey said, we see the world not as it is, but as we are, we reflect our experience out on the world. So recognizing that like, no, your experience is actually just your experience (laughs) and you have to um, ask people questions and build connection and and relationships with them to better understand their experience, I think is really powerful. Yeah. And I would love to hear what some of those questions would be. Like if, if I'm in a room and I am having my own experience of the room, um, but then maybe I, I, I want to understand how other people are experiencing you know, even a conference, even, even a, my husband and I host, um, uh, every six, six weeks we host like virtual events or we're hosting salons or we're hosting, um, mastermind experiences. And I would love to sit down and really get a reference for how other people are experiencing it. And so I'm curious what those type of questions would be that would feel safe, um, where it's really about our just, just inquiry, right? It's about us becoming, um, knowledgeable so that we can make change within our community? I think that it's really important that those questions never come across as performative. So they should be in one-on-one interaction, right? So like, I don't think that the, and, and sometimes clients bring us in with this sort of request, right? Like there's two or three black people on the team or two, on, on a team of white people or two or three um, women on a team of men. And, and they sort of want us to like, get those people to speak in the session about their experience. And I just think it's a little bit insensitive, right? I mean, their experience is not happening for your benefit, right? It's it's happening. And so I think safety is about personal connection and taking the extra time to reach out to people after an event or in advance of the event to say, you know, we're really making an effort to make this event more inclusive. Would you have 10 minutes to talk to me before the event? about what we can do and then 10 minutes to talk to me after the event about what your experience was. And 
I think in order for those questions to seem really sincere, they have to be private, right? We have to create a space where people feel like we're genuinely interested in their response and it's not sort of performative. Um, I also think we have to think about the responses we get. And even if our instinct is to feel defensive, not articulate that defense, right? So someone says like, well, Pamela, I feel like you were really, this story you shared was really in poor taste or, you know, I share a story about, um, I was hiring someone and we went through the interviewing process. We offered this young lady a job and, um, I offered her the job and she was so excited. She said, when do I start? And then she said, also, what's your maternity leave policy? Because I'm expecting. And this is the story I opened the book with. And I was, my heart sank. I mean, I was just like, no, <laughs> not maternity leave. And, and then I shared that this is the insidious nature of bias, is that I have two children. At the time, my youngest was two. I mean, I could smell maternity leave. It was so close, right? And yet I had this negative reaction. And often our biases, when they come to consciousness like this, they are in direct contradiction with our stated beliefs. I mean, I actually believe that there should be paid six to 12 month maternity leave, parental leave in this country, right? Universally. Um, that's what I vote for. That's what I donate my money to. But in the moment, it was very inconvenient for me and I had this negative reaction. And so I share it as sort of a vulnerable moment and an opportunity for growth. Well, I told that story in a room with, where a woman was pregnant with her second child and she had had, I think her oldest was like two. So she had been, she, and she talked about how the first time she told them she was pregnant, everyone was so supportive and it was so wonderful. And then the second time, people were really exasperated and they were sort of frustrated with her. They're like, you just did this. Why are you doing this again? And that for her, the example I shared was in poor taste and it was really reinforcing her management's perspective that this was very inconvenient. And I wanted to, my instinct was I wanted to say like, well, no, the point I was trying to make, right. I wanted to defend myself and my validation of why this was a good example. And had I done that, it would have been really minimizing to her because she had the courage to share with me how she took this experience and what it would mean for her when I left, right? And so it was really valid. And so despite my instincts, I kept my mouth shut. I thanked her for that feedback. And I really recalibrated how I shared that story moving forward so that no one could walk away, even unintentionally, with the belief that maternity leave is inconvenient. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, and I love that you shared that. Thank you so much. I have had to reframe how I shared my eating disorder story many times because it can be triggering or it can, you know, it can be, um, feel very, very much coming from a place of privilege. And so I, um, I have taken feedback and it has been hard. Like there's been emails I've gotten that I'm like, uh, and then I'm like, no, just breathe through it and actually recognize how this person is experiencing how you're speaking and how you're sharing your story. And and what if you can change just one part of it and still create the impact that you want to have from it, but it feels um, not softer, but feels a little bit more approachable and, and potentially might not trigger, you know, trigger anyone the next time. And so thank you for sharing that. I've, I've been in that experience and I, um, I haven't always, you know, there's times I've had to go out and breathe and do the meditation and go for a walk and been like, oh, I'm just trying to make the world a better place. And it's so appropriate and important for us to take feedback and, and really modify the things that we're doing so people feel safer in our experience. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful. 
Um, and I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. I'm excited for your book. If people want to learn more about your work, they want to get the book, where are the best places for people to find you so they can get all of this content and more? So I'm on um, all the social medias. You can follow me on social media, Pamela Fuller. I would love to connect with you. You can pre-order the book wherever you get books. So whether you prefer to frequent independent booksellers or get your books off Amazon or Audible, it is available for pre-order and will launch on November 10th um, in all countries that speak English. It will also be published internationally over the next year, which is sort of exciting. Um, and then you can go to franklincovey.com to learn more about um, my work in Unconscious Bias, our course of that same name, and, um, and search tons of additional resources around how we make progress on bias. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. This was a lovely conversation and I hope helpful for your listeners. I'm sure it's going to be so helpful. I'm, I'm excited for them to get it and listen. Wow, what a wonderful conversation with Pamela. These conversations are so important and I'm so thankful that you joined today to share in this dialogue. As Pamela shared, unconscious bias affects everyone and it may look like frustration from HR when a candidate asks about maternity leave. It may look like choosing an Ivy League graduate over one from a state school despite experience levels. It may look like encouraging men to speak more than women in important meetings. These internalized beliefs are so deeply embedded in our minds and in our society that we are usually completely unaware of them. And that's why this work is so incredibly important. And that's why I loved that Pamela shared about mindfulness. Mindfulness is a key tool in building the self-awareness and introspection necessary to recognize and overcome our unconscious ways of living. This week, I encourage you to spend some time considering how unconscious bias may be informing your choices, both in and out of work, and how you can devote energy to the process of unlearning these beliefs and embodying empathy, curiosity, and courage. Further to confront these deeply internalized beliefs that may still be informing the way that you see the world and those around you, I encourage you to do the work by grabbing Pamela's book, a Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. So often, our beliefs are rooted in the unconscious, creating deep assumptions about one another. But wherever you are in your journey, it's never too late. There is so much work to be done, and that work begins with each of us individually. I trust you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was a conversation I believe that we can all benefit from. And so if you enjoyed my conversation with Pamela, I recommend listening to my podcast with Amari Anderson as we dive deep into what culturally needs to shift to bring about real lasting change, to end racism and uplevel the consciousness of humanity. Drop me a message on Instagram if you've been listening to these podcasts and let me know what's been resonating. What do you want to hear more about? How can I support you in becoming happier and healthier? You can find me on Instagram at Sarah and Stewart. I would love to connect with you there and celebrate you. So please, again, drop me a message and let's connect. Until next time, I'm sending you so much love and trusting that you will have a beautiful, incredible week ahead. All right, that concludes this cast. It is my honor to always be here with you. 
but hang tight because I have one last thought. You're here right now because you are ready. Because while many of us share the feelings of wanting more, not everyone is willing to do what it takes to get it. But you are here. You are ready. So this is your opportunity now to take what you just learned and implement it today. Make a pact with yourself to put just one thing into action. Just one. Write it down, do it, and share it with me. We are all in this together. Thank you for being here. You too can feel awesome from the inside out.